Good morning. When I have the opportunity to uh, preach at Bethel, there are some Sundays that I look at the different verses that are laid out in our lectionary, the assigned lessons for the day, and think, huh, I wonder how these go together. And this is one of those Sundays. In the New Testament, we get the very familiar story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And in the Old Testament story, we get basically a little piece of liturgy from a harvest festival. And I'm left wondering how they go together. But if you'll give me about 22 minutes, I hope I will be able to help you out with that. (laughs) So let's start here with the Old Testament. The book of Deuteronomy is where our lesson came from today. And many of you know already, but the book of Deuteronomy is literally, the name means the second law or the repeated law. Because it's the second time that Moses is going to give the people of Israel the law. And it's a series of five sermons by Moses. And our section this morning is the fifth and final sermon. And it's given to the people of Israel as they're about to enter the promised land. They're literally standing at the Jordan River and they're going to go into the promised land. And Moses gives these sermons. And in the middle of this is this section we have from today, which is talking about a harvest festival. And it's talking about the first harvest festival of the year. It's a spring harvest festival. It happens in May or June, and it goes by three different names, and you know it, but you may not know that you know it. The Hebrew name is Sukkot. The English name for this is the Feast of Weeks. And it's the Feast of Weeks because it is seven weeks after Passover, or 49 days. When the Old Testament is translated into Greek in the Septuagint, that 49 gets rounded up a little to 50, and so we know it quite often as Pentecost. And that's the, that's the feast that they're talking about celebrating when they get into the Promised Land. That festival that, for the early Christian church, is the time when the Holy Spirit comes and the church gets started. They were there celebrating this harvest festival that Moses is telling them, when you get to the promised land, finally, you need to celebrate this. But the reason why Moses is telling the law again, and the reason why this passage is here, is the people that he left Egypt with are not the same people he is standing here at the Jordan River with. Forty years have passed. And we're familiar with the story, I hope, that what happens is that when God brings them out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, with mighty signs and wonders, with ten plagues, with the Passover, he then leads them to Mount Sinai where they get the law. And then about a year later, they end up at the promised land. Not 40 years later, but one year later. And they send in 12 spies to see what this land is going to be like. And 10 of the spies come back and say, whoa, we can't do this. They are giants. And we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. And two of the spies 
Joshua and Caleb say, in essence, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big they are. It matters how big God is. But they don't listen to those two. They listen to the ten, and they say, we won't go in. And God says, okay, you won't go in. Now, do I have in the congregation today anybody who is 11? Do I have an 11-year-old? We got an 11-year-old? Okay, thank you. That's helpful. Do I have anybody, and another one over there, do I have anybody who is willing to admit they are 51? Okay. Okay. Good try. (laughs) So, 51 and 11. The oldest of the people who are here standing with Moses were not yet of the age of accountability, which is roughly 13, the age that your young Jewish friends get their bat mitzvah or their bar mitzvah. And so they were 12 at the time they were standing at the promised land the first time. They were 11 when they left Egypt. They are now 51. How many of you are older than 51 and willing to admit it? Yeah, me too. We didn't make it. (laughs) We are buried somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula. And so Moses is dealing with these new generation of people that have many of them been born in the wilderness or they were that old when they left Egypt. It only took 10 plagues to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. But now they're here and they're ready to go in. And Moses says, when you go in, I want you to remember some things. And one of the things he says, I want you to remember to celebrate this festival. I want you to remember when you go into this land that God has given you to celebrate that. And when you do, I want you to say these words. We are descendants of a wandering Aramean. We sojourned in Egypt, we were rescued by God from Egypt, and we were given this land of milk and honey, this land where we are now celebrating the harvest. I want you to do it the first year, and I want you to do it every year thereafter to remember, in essence, who you are, where you came from, and whose you are. And that's the first point at which I start to see something in common with our New Testament lesson from Luke. Because if you notice the first line of the lesson today, it says that Jesus goes up from Jordan, same river these guys are standing at. He just was baptized in the river Jordan by John the Baptist the chapter before. And you may remember that in the baptism of Jesus, the last thing that happens is the heavens open up The Holy Spirit descends on him as a dove, and what? A voice cries out from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, last Sunday we had this transfiguration and another voice from heaven, so you might think it happens every week to Jesus, but as far as we know, these are the only two times. And it's very significant because in this time of temptation, He gets three temptations, and the first and the third, Satan starts with what words? If you are the Son of God, and challenges who 
Jesus is. Going back to Deuteronomy, I left out something a little important when I said that this is the fifth of the sermons given by Moses to the people of Israel, the people of God, as they're about to enter into the promised land. It is the fifth and final, and it is given on the last day of Moses' life. He will give this sermon, and then he will die. He will not go into the promised land because of something else that happened in Exodus. And they are going into the promised land tomorrow. And so Moses has one last chance to talk to the people of Israel. And so, yes, he tells them this liturgy that they should do. You should remember who you are and whose you are and where you came from. But he goes on the next three chapters to talk about temptation. That you're going to be tempted to be drawn away from God when you get into the promised land. And he talks one chapter about the blessing of obedience, one chapter about the curse of disobedience, and ends the whole sermon with a choice. Choose God and live. And so even in this section, we're leading up to because of who you are, what are you going to do? The same as we have over here. But before we get into the temptations, I want to deal with this question a little bit of who am I? Who are we? Um, I've been dealing with this a little bit at Bethel here over the last couple months. How many of you have taken the, the IDI, the intercultural development inventory that Pastor Ben has been wanting everyone to take that will help us in our ministry to people who are not like us. And for those of you who haven't taken it, there's a lot of questions in that test, if you will, that are of the form of, are your people more or less in this fashion different from other people? Are they better than this or are they less than that? Well, one of the things you have to figure out is when you're answering those questions, well, who, who do you think my people are? Who do I think my people are? And I found myself asking that question as I was taking the IDI was, who are my people? I know when Joan fills out that survey, she first goes to their New Yorkers because that's where she grew up. And that is fundamentally more important than Irish, German, or whatever you know, that might be, or even American. For me, you know, I, again, I probably wouldn't go to Northern European as a defining metric of who I am first, German and Danish. I would probably go to a, you know, Silicon Valley nerd uh, before I'd go to anything else. A Californian, sure. A, a blogger, a podcaster, an occasional preacher, a pasty white programmer. I am a lot of things. I am a walking Venn diagram of influences in terms of who I am. And, and so were the people of Israel over here. They weren't just all one unanimous people. They were priests and they were shepherds. They were people of the tribe of Levi and they were people of the tribe of Benjamin. But overall, Moses is saying, remember this. Remember that you are all also descendants of a wandering Aramean, descendants of Abraham. And that you are chosen by God, brought out of Egypt, and given this land. So let's talk about those choices now that we've established who we are, that we are all of those things that define us. We are from where we're from and where we grew up and our nationality and our vocation. 
We are doctors, we are ditch diggers, we are a lot of things, but we are also, I hope, Christians, and we are children of God as well. So, establishing that, Jesus, in this temptation, is told in the first one, if you are the Son of God. Now, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, so he's told, if you are the Son of God, take this stone and turn it into bread, which seems to me like a really good idea, because he is hungry. And I don't know about you, but I am not my best, I'm not at my best when I am hungry, Uh, nor do I know many people who are. In fact, I'm a walking Venn diagram, but I'm also different in the morning than I am in the evening. Morning Chris is an optimist who is ready to take on the day. He's ready to get everything checked off his to-do list. He's going to keep that diet that he's not been keeping up until that point. He's going to do that workout that darn he was going to do yesterday, but he didn't get it round to. Morning Chris is a go-getter. And evening Chris is a slacker and a bit of a jerk. Evening Chris would gladly let anything that needs to get done get done by tomorrow Chris, who has to deal with a lot of stuff that gets dumped on him. Evening Chris is tired. Evening Chris is often hungry. Evening Chris, when given the opportunity, had he the ability to turn stone into bread, would not do it if he could turn it into pie. (laughs) And to Evening Chris, that seems like a great deal. Stone into bread, you bet, you're hungry, you should eat. But Jesus, in his response to that temptation, that man does not live by bread alone, teaches us, teaches even evening Chris, hopefully, that what I want, even what I need, even what I crave, may not be the most important thing. And then Jesus is led to the top of a tall mountain where he can see, we are told, in an instant every country in the world, every nation in the world. Now, since this is geographically impossible, he's seeing them somehow in some special way. So I don't know if he's just seeing all the ones of his day or if he can see right here into Bethel this morning. And he sees all the people of every tribe and nation. And Satan says, you want them? I can give them to you. They were given to me by us. And I can give them to you. All you have to do is worship me. And I think by this point, Jesus knows that this is not the plan of God. That the plan of God, I think he is full aware by this point, involves, yes, taking back wresting some of these people out of the hands of Satan, but doing it via the cross. And so Satan presents Jesus with an alternate plan. Something different, something easier. And in his response to that temptation, Jesus is telling us that any plan that is not God's plan is less than and falls short. And then again, Satan says to Jesus, if, if you are the son of God, you might want to prove it, go up to the top of the temple, jump off, 
And the scriptures say that angels will catch you. And I think we sometimes do hear the voice of God saying, my child, I will catch you. And I think sometimes we hear the voice of God and the voice of my mother saying, get down off there, you'll break your neck. (laughs) That Jesus says we should not put the Lord God to the test. God does not have to prove his love for us again. And I thought when I was reading the scripture of a book of poems that I was given in sixth grade, I have a a dog-eared book of poems called The Light Brigade and Other Poems. And in there, there is a poem called The Lions and the Glove. And I'm guessing that none of you have ever read this poem. Okay. I won't read it for you, but you can look it up if you want. The Lions and the Glove. And it's a story of the king who gathers all his nobles and they're feasting and they're enjoying a spectacle in an arena of lions fighting each other down in the sands of the arena. And the king says to the nobles, better up here than down there. You know, and as he does, one of the ladies who is there, who is there with the Count de Lure, she thinks, oh, I can have my love, the Count de Lure, prove his love for me amongst all of these people. And wouldn't that be great? And so she catches his eye and she takes off her glove and very intentionally drops it into the arena that is filled with roaring lions. And the Count de Lure bows to her and quickly hops into the arena snatches up the glove and before the lions can react, jumps back out again. And the poet tells us that he throws the glove, but not with love, right in the woman's face. (laughs) And the king says, well done, because it is not love, but vanity that sets love a task like that. God doesn't need to prove his love to us again because he did it on the cross when Jesus resisted that second temptation of taking a different path, an alternative strategy to the plan of God. And on the cross, he took a disparate bunch of people. Some children, descendants of a wandering Aramean, some of the tribe of Levi or Benjamin, some shepherds and priests, some New Yorkers and Californians, some doctors and ditch diggers, some, some pasty white programmers from Silicon Valley, people of every language and tongue, people from all of those countries and nations that Jesus saw from the top of that mountain and people of every color and hue, and he made them one people, the people of God. And so, people of Bethel, people of God, I encourage you, as Moses encouraged the children of Israel, let us choose God and live. Amen. (laughs) The love of God is immeasurable. It's unchanging. It's indescribable. Because God loves you so much, 
you can sleep through the night in peace. With Abide Bible Sleep Meditation, you can fall asleep fast with relaxing sleep stories based on Scripture. To start listening now, go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Abide Bible Sleep Meditation. You can also download the Abide app for more biblical meditations at abide.com.